Take your Bibles and turn with me to Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9. As we study, or continue our study in this, in this book, someone commented to me this past week, you know, Hebrews is a tough book. And uh, it is. That's why I've been preaching for almost 40 years, and this is the first time I've ever tackled preaching through it in 40 years. Uh, it is a tough book. It, it, it's a lot of symbolism. There's a lot of analogy there between the old and the new and, and trying to show how the old is pointing to the new. And, and sometimes our understanding of the Old Testament is not real clear, and so there's a cloudiness when he starts using some of the examples that he's using in writing to these Hebrew Christians. And, and, and we're not struggling with going back to Judaism. We're not thinking in our day about going back to, uh, to the old ways of, of the law and the sacrifices as, as a way of, of toning for sin. And so we kind of look at that and say, well, why is this so important? Well, it's important because we still do struggle with going back to the old ways. Maybe not the old ways of Judaism, but the old ways of life. We do struggle with going back to dependence upon self when the writer of Hebrews is wanting us to see that our dependence, our trust, our faith, our walk must be in Christ Jesus at every moment of every day as we pursue what he's called us to be. And he makes that clear in here. He does use these shadows, and he does use the Old Testament. I'm, I'm somewhat reminded, I don't, I don't know if you remember reading, or maybe you saw the movie, uh, but C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia, uh, that's some of my favorite writing, and, and we read those to our kids when they were small, and, and we've watched the movies that have been produced both, both by the BBC and then the more recent ones, which have a whole lot more cinematography to them of, of effects and everything. They're, not, they're much more dramatic. But I remember in the story, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, the one that was first made into a film here in our country, and the kids are in the house and they're playing, and they come into this room where this, there's this ordinary-looking wardrobe. It's not fancy, it's not unusual, it's just a wardrobe in a bedroom where you would hang clothes and keep clothes uh, being protected in that room and keep them stored away. But yet when, they, when Lucy opened the door and went into the wardrobe, the wardrobe contained something far more and far greater than the external ever showed. That's the way it was in the Old Testament tabernacle in the Old Testament temple. Put that up there for me if you would on the screen. We've looked at this when we first started Hebrews. We talked about what it looked like or what it was. Um, and we're going to try to do that again. There we go. You know, this is, this is sort of a rendering of what the tabernacle looked like. Now, we realize later on there was the temple that was built. Solomon built his temple, which was a replacement of the tabernacle, but in some ways it was inferior to the tabernacle. The tabernacle was portable and moved with God's people. The, the temple became stationary and permanent in one place. But, but if you looked at the tabernacle out in the wilderness, as all the tribes of Israel were camped around it as they were moving through their wilderness experiences, if you look at that, you just say that's really quite ordinary. There's, there's a fence around it made out of wood and, and certain elements that God prescribed. There's, a, there's, inner, there's the, the outer court there. Then there's that tent that covers up the inner courts, both the holy place and then on further, the holy of holies. <clears throat> but if you look at that, just passing by, you'd say, well, that's an interesting big tent 
out in the middle of their campsite. But as you went into that tent, which you couldn't do as an ordinary person, but as those who went into the holy place and then into the Holy of Holies discovered very quickly there was far more to the tabernacle than just met the eye as you were looking at it. Now we looked at a diagram. The next slide there is a diagram we looked at before that just kind of is, it gives you direction of the pointing of it and uh, the directional uh, situation which is always built in, always uh, east to west, uh, in, or, or west to east facing toward the west. But you, you had in there, the outer court, you had two things. You had the, the, the uh, altar of burnt offering, where offerings were made there on behalf of the people. Then you had the laver, which was a place where the priest would wash up after offering the, uh, offering the offering and the sacrifice there in the outer court. Then you went on into the, ta- into the tabernacle proper, into the inner parts. First, there's the, the holy place, which had three things in it. It had the golden candlestick, which was what we would call like a menorah today. It had seven candles on it, and they always burned, and they had to be there because there was no windows in this tabernacle. There was no external light coming in. It was completely sealed off, and so the candles kept the inner court there, the the holy place, lit so that they could see to carry out their work, And, and they continuously, it was the responsibility of the priest to keep that going. There was the table of showbread, On the table of showbread, there were 12 loaves of bread. And the priest ate those as they ministered there in the holy place. No one ate the showbread except the priest. Now, that was reminding that God is the bread that fed them in the wilderness through the manna. God was the bread that they used in the Passover when they came out of Egypt and were being led on their way to the promised land. The showbread had great symbolism. Later on, Jesus would say, as he fed 5,000 people with some bread and some fishes, I am the bread of life. And if you eat of me, you'll never hunger again. And so Jesus took that analogy of the bread and talked about it being himself. And then there was the altar of incense. Now, interestingly, as we read this in a moment, the writer of Hebrews is going to place the altar of incense in the Holy of Holies. And some people have looked at that and said, well, now there is an era in Scripture. Technically, it's, it's not in the Holy of Holies, but it was seen as part of the veil that, ca- that covered the Holy of Holies. And so in a non-technical sense, but in a sense of spiritual reality, it is a part of that veil that carries forth the Holy of Holies or blocks out the Holy of Holies. It was a constant veil of, of incense, a veil of smoke. And it was representative of, God, of the prayers of God's people going up. As the incense was lit, it would go up in a cloud and, and there would be the, the, the symbolism of the prayers of God's people being offered. But it sort of veiled the veil and by the writer of Hebrews, considered a part of the Holy of Holies for that reason. Then you go into the Holy of Holies and there you have the Ark of the Covenant. And he's going to describe that a little bit as we read this text. So I want to show you that again as you hear this so that you'll remember what's taking place. Listen to the word of God. Now even the first covenant had regulations of divine worship and the earthly sanctuary. For there was a tabernacle prepared, the outer one, in which were the lampstand and the table and the sacred bread that is called the holy place. He he begins there in the holy place. Behind the second veil, there was a tabernacle which is called the Holy of Holies, having a golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold. 
in which was the, a golden jar holding the manna, and Aaron's rod which budded, and the tables of the covenant, that is the Ten Commandments. And above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. But of these things we cannot now speak in detail. Now when these things have been so prepared, the priests are continually entering the outer tabernacle, performing the divine worship. But into the second, that is into the Holy of Holies, only the high priest enters once a year, not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit is signifying this, that the way into the holy place has not yet been disclosed while the outer tabernacle is still standing, which is a symbol of the present time or for the present time. According, accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience since they relate only to food and drink and various washings. Regulations for the body imposed until a time of reformation. Now that's a, a statement that the writer here is making to show the, the hearers of this letter or this sermon why the new covenant was necessary. Last week, we looked at chapter 8, verses 7 through 13, and we saw there the quotation, the lengthy quotation from Jeremiah 31, where the, where the writer of Hebrews quotes about Jeremiah talking about a new covenant that is yet to come, a new covenant that will carry with it various and great promises, the promise of an of a inward motivation to be obedient to God, writing of his law in our mind and our hearts, the promise of forgiveness of sins, and the promise that, that he would be their God and our God and would be our God forever. I mean, the, the new covenant carries with it these tremendous promises. But some of these people are saying, well, we had promises in the old covenant. We had promises in the old tabernacle. Why the necessity for a new one? And that's what he begins to unfold in these first two chapters uh, first 10 verses, rather, of chapter 9. Basically what he's saying here is the gospel is the new covenant, and the new covenant is the gospel. Jesus Christ brought a message for us to hear and us to believe and to believe in him as the central matter of that gospel. I don't know if you read the grace notes this week. Sometimes we wonder if those just go out in cyberspace and, and disappear out there somewhere. But in the grace notes, I had a rather lengthy quotation uh, uh, under my pastor's uh, comments or pastor's uh, thoughts, which, which basically I've done all summer. I've given you some kind of quotation to think on and meditate on. I have never had one that's meant any more to me than the one this week because it, it was rather lengthy, but it was a real clear gospel gold expression. It was the gold, the heart, the kernel of the gospel that was not scripture being quoted, but it was very scriptural. It was something that, now I realize some people have a, as I said in the article, have an allergy to John Calvin, and they start sneezing when the name John Calvin is mentioned. But this was, a, this was, an, this was written by John Calvin as a preface to a New Testament translation, a French translation of the New Testament, by Pierre Robert Oliviton uh, back in 1534. But I want you to, I'm going to read this because some things need to be read aloud. 
You know, that's why when, when we had the scripture reading on Sunday morning, we used to put the scripture in the, in the bulletin, but everybody was rushing and rustling to try to find it. There's sometimes when you just want people to listen to the word. There are times when, when we're studying it like this, when I'm teaching from it, I want you to have the word open in front of you and follow along. But there are times when there's a power in just hearing the word. You understand? And sometimes there are things that, I've read this about 20 times this week, and about half of those times, I read it out loud. I don't know what Sue and Ricky thought was going on in my office at times, probably, because there were several times in my office, I just read it out loud, because it's, it's worthy to be read out loud. I want you to hear this, and just listen to it. Without the gospel, everything is useless and vain. Without the gospel, we are not Christians. Without the gospel, all riches is poverty, all wisdom folly before God, strength is weakness, and all the justice of man is under the condemnation of God. But by the knowledge of the gospel, we are made children of God, brothers of Jesus Christ, fellow townsmen with the saints, citizens of the kingdom of heaven, heirs of God with Jesus Christ, by whom the poor are made rich, the weak strong, the fools wise, the sinner justified, the desolate comforted, the doubting sure, and slaves free. It is the power of God for the salvation of all those who believe. It follows that every good thing we could think or desire is to be found in the same Jesus Christ alone. For he was sold to buy us back captive to deliver us, condemned to absolve us. He was made a curse for our blessing, a sin offering for our righteousness, marred that we may be made fair. He died for our life, that by him fury is made gentle, wrath appeased, darkness turned into light, fear reassured, Despisal despised, debt canceled, labor lightened, sadness made merry, misfortune made fortunate, difficulty easy, disorder ordered, division united, ignomy ennobled, rebellion subjected, intimidation intimidated, ambush uncovered, assaults assailed, force forced back. Combat, combated. War, warred against. Vengeance, avenged. Torment, tormented. Damnation, damned. The abyss, sunk into the abyss. Hell, transfixed. Death, dead. Mortality, made mortal. In short, mercy has swallowed up all misery. And goodness, all misfortune. For all these things which were to be the weapons of the devil in his battle against us and the sting of death to pierce us are turned for us into exercises which we can turn into our profit. For if we are able to boast with the apostles saying, O hell, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? It is because by the Spirit of Christ promised to the elect, we live no longer but Christ lives in us, and we are not by the same Spirit, and we are, we are, excuse me, and we are by the same Spirit seated among those who are in heaven, 
so that for us the world is no more, even while our conversation is in it. But we are content in all things, whether country, place, condition, clothing, meat, and all such things. And we are comforted in tribulation, joyful in sorrow, glorying in vitrepation, abounding in poverty, warmed in our nakedness, patient among evils, living in death. That is what we should in short seek in the whole of Scripture. Truly to know Jesus Christ and the infinite riches that are comprised in Him and are offered to us by Him from God the Father. I mean, when I read that on Monday, I think, in, in a, a friend's blog, and I just, I thought, well, what is, I've never heard this. I've never read anything of a, from a, an introduction that Calvin did to a French translation, probably because I don't read French, I've probably never read it. But, but it was there, and I started reading, and I went, wait a minute, this is good stuff. This is expressing what the new covenant is doing. This is expressing why the new covenant is so necessary and so valid because the new covenant is the gospel and the gospel is the new covenant. And in that new covenant we have blessings and promises that are eternal and that will never end and we need to learn those and know those and walk in those. Basically what the writer here is saying, and I'll say this quickly, what the writer is saying here is three things form the necessity for the old. Now, he's not downplaying the old. Notice that. In those first five verses, he talks about this as something that is given by God. He's not saying it's unnecessary. He's not saying it's evil. He's not saying that, that it wasn't important for its time and it didn't fulfill its purpose in its time. But what he is saying is, it's now obsolete. It's now passing away. It's now being put apart because the perfect has come, the complete has come, the Messiah has come, Jesus the Christ has come, and we'll talk about that a lot tonight in our, in our discussion of the, the creed, Apostles' Creed, what that means, Jesus Christ, our Lord, all of that's wrapped up in that is wrapped up in the new covenant and wrapped up in the new tabernacle being established that he'll talk about next week or two weeks from today as we come back to this text. It's important to see what he's saying here. We have been given a greater promise. We have been given a greater covenant. We have been given a greater tabernacle to worship in that is beyond that which was on the earth, although God prescribed it and it was used for God's glory in its time. But he says there are several things that are missing. There are several things that need to be rectified in this new covenant that could never have happened in the old. First of all, he talks about the fact that there was a restricted access to God in the Old Covenant. There was restricted access. That is, the priest went into the, to the holy place and they ministered there. And then once a year on the Day of Atonement, the high priest went into the Holy of Holies and there the Shekinah glory of God descended. And there he met with God on behalf of the people, taking blood as an offering for his own sins and for the sins of the people. But you couldn't go into the holy place. You certainly couldn't go into the Holy of Holies. If someone other than the high priest went into the Holy of Holies, they would immediately have died in the presence of God. Tradition says the high priest even wore a bell on his, his garment when he went in there so that as he moved around in the Holy of Holies, the bell would tingle and they would know he was still alive. 
and they tied a rope to his leg, it was said, so that if he happened to die in there, they could get him out without somebody else going in there and dying in the presence of God. I mean, they took every precaution. But it was a very limited access to get into the presence of God. But the writer is saying in the new covenant, we all have access to him because we all know him. Verse 11 of chapter 8, we looked at last week. And they shall not teach everyone his fellow citizen and everyone his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all will know me, from the least to the greatest of them. There is now an open access, a free access, into the very presence of God that took place when Christ died on the cross as an atonement. Do you remember reading in Matthew's Gospel? about what took place in that hour when Jesus cried in a loud voice, it is finished. Several miles or several, a, a distance from there, I don't know how far it was, I've not been over there, I'll measure if I ever go, but from Calvary to the, the place where the temple was, was a distance. But at the moment Jesus said it is finished, the moment he cried out that the, the covenant had been accomplished, the new covenant had been established, that his blood was now sealing that new covenant, do you remember what happened in the temple? Something very dramatic happened in the temple. Do you remember what it was? The veil was torn. And it wasn't torn from bottom to top as though some man could go in there and rip it open. It was torn from top to to bottom. It was torn from God's side down to man's side. But it opened the Holy of Holies so that we might go in. So that there might be free access. So that now we all become a, 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 a people of priests, a nation of priests, as, as uh, it's talked about in, in Peter's writing. That we, we go in and now we're a, we're a nation of priests ourselves, a people who have access into the presence of God. The old had limited access. The new has access abundant and abounding because now we have a relationship with him as his adopted sons and daughters, his adopted children. It's a tremendous promise of the new covenant. It's a tremendous promise of the new covenant that we can enter into his presence. In fact, in the scripture, we're, we're challenged, we're commanded to draw near. Draw near with confidence. Draw near to his throne of grace. Draw near in our prayers. We don't have to go to a priest and say, would you offer up this prayer for me? Would you say this on behalf of me before God? There are no priests in that respect apart from ourselves. We are, we are priests now that can go before God in prayer. We take our prayers directly to Christ and to God. We don't, we don't have to have an intermediary. We don't have to have someone to mediate for us. Well, that's a great promise in the new covenant. It's a great benefit in the new covenant. That we are now a kingdom of priests. We're a nation of priests. A people that are priests. The priesthood of all believers together in Christ is a great unrestricted access into the presence of Almighty God. Second thing he talks about, the reason there was a need for a new covenant and a new place of worship that he'll deal with later or talk about a new tabernacle is that there was only a partial cleansing. Only a partial cleansing. And he said, you know, the, uh, the Holy Spirit signifying this and talking about this, but, but while uh, the, the holy place, that the way to the holy place has not yet been disclosed while the outer tabernacle is still standing, it broke down with the, with the tearing of the veil, which is a symbol of the present time. Accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience. 
Why? Well, because they relate only to food and drink and various washings, regulations of body imposed until a time of reformation. There was a partial cleansing. There was sins that were dealt with, but if you notice here, he specifies the type sins which are forgiven. It's verse 7, it says that he made these, these offerings for the people that committed sins in ignorance. The only offerings that were given were the sins that were, for the sins that were committed in ignorance. Willful sins, sinning wittingly before God, was not even dealt with in this. I mean, if there was a, if there was a volitional sin, a sin that was thought through, a sin that was carried out because you wanted to do it, there was no washing, there was no covering. There was no cleansing. It was just for those sins of ignorance. Now, you and I all still have sins of ignorance. I hope you know that. I hope you realize that, that you still sin sometimes and don't even know you sinned. Uh, so do I. Uh, we struggle with that. And, and sometimes we can go forever without ever, having a, uh, without ever even thinking about that sin because we did it in ignorance. Thankfully, in the new covenant, all the sins are covered. But those were the only sins that were covered in the old sacrifice system. So there was a partial cleansing. But he's already told us in the new covenant in, in chapter 8 when he said, you know, I, uh, I will be merciful to their iniquities. Verse 12, I will be merciful to their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. And we've talked about how literally remember them against them no more. I won't bring it up. I won't make an issue out of it. And it doesn't make a, a, a characterization there of their sins of ignorance or their sins of volition. It's just their sins, period. In the old covenant, there were a partial cleansing. In the new covenant, there is a complete cleansing and a complete forgiveness and a complete covering of our sin by Jesus Christ. Again, the new covenant is the gospel. And the gospel is the new covenant. Thirdly, and the third reason there was a need for a new covenant was that there was limited pardon of sin. Now that sounds very similar to the second one, but it's, it's a bit different. There was a limited pardon for sin. And in this, in, in this new covenant, all the sins are covered, all the sins are forgiven. God will remember their sins no more. In the old covenant, there had to be this specification of sins. There had to be this, this dealing with sins in order for them to be forgiven. You, you had to mention them. You had to name them. You had to go through them. Now, realize that in, in the new covenant, we still confess our sins. But we don't confess our sins for forgiveness. We confess our sins because we are forgiven. We confess our sins because there is a relationship. And confession, as John is talking about in 1 John 1.9, when he says, if we confess our sins, if there is a, a conditional clause that could be translated easily, since we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. He, he forgives us of all unrighteousness. He's talking about there the mark of a believer. A true believer is one who confesses sins. And, and the word confess there is the word in the Greek, homo legeo. We've talked about this before. Homo legeo, in a compound word, homo meaning the same as, Legeo, coming from the leo, which means to say or to speak. 
You put those two words together and it just simply means confession is to say the same thing that God says about our sin. It's to agree with God. It's when the Holy Spirit convicts us, we say, yes, Lord, that is sin in my life. I agree with you about that. Cleanse it away. Wash it away. Give me strength against that sin. That's what confession is today. It's not to get forgiveness. I've met people before I have, in other churches, other places, who, who thought, well, if we don't confess every sin, that sin will never be forgiven. And, and I, I scratch my head at that because then we're all in trouble. I'll never forget one of our maintenance men at, at First Baptist Sweetwater back years ago. George, a precious guy, loved the Lord, walked with Christ, had a great relationship with the Lord. One day we're getting ready, we were getting ready to present the building that we were about to build, and we had a big meeting that night, and the place was full. And about five minutes before that, someone came in and said, George committed suicide. He hung himself this afternoon. I knew some of the background. I knew some things he was struggling with that he just couldn't forgive himself for, that was, was already covered by Christ, but, but nobody else knew that. And, and, and so we started, we, we had our meeting, then we started talking about George. Everybody was asking questions. And I remember one person coming up to me and said, you know, George really loved the Lord. George really walked with Christ so clearly. He was such an example for so much of us. It is a, it's a shame that he's now in hell. And I went, beg pardon? He said, oh, listen, Suicide is a sin. Grant that. Suicide is a sin. He said, and, and George killed himself and committed that sin, and because he was dead, he couldn't ask forgiveness for that sin, and so you can't go in the presence of God with unforgiven sin, and so George is now in hell. I said, where'd you get that? Well, isn't it in the Bible? No, it's not in the Bible. And we went on and talked about that. And I even had, at his funeral, I dealt with that very matter. I, I talked about the whole concept of suicide. I made it clear that suicide is a sin. Suicide is not a good choice. Suicide is bad. But it's not an unforgivable sin. And you don't have to confess. If George is in hell today because he didn't confess that sin, then folks, you and I are on our way to the same place because we have sins that are unconfessed we have sins of ignorance that we don't even know about we have disobediences to God every day you may go into that restaurant this afternoon or tomorrow or next week and you may be sitting there and God may bring somebody in your path who needs to know Christ who, who, who he's prepared their heart for, for hearing the gospel and you feel like you know maybe I ought to share the gospel with this person and you say oh they're too busy or I got to get out of here and you just go on that's a sin and, and many times we don't even think about it. Sometimes we're not even sensitive to what God's trying to do in using us there. No. That's the glory of the new covenant. The glory of the new covenant is there's not a limited pardon of sin. There is an absolute pardoning of sin. That's what the writer is saying. That's what Paul is saying in Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you are in Christ, you are covered by the righteousness of Christ completely from day one of your being in Christ. That's a glorious thing in this new covenant. It's the beauty of the new covenant. Now, some will say, well, then that makes you be a careless Christian. Then you're not really in Christ. You know? 
That's a misunderstanding of what being a Christian is. Being a Christian is not just assenting to Jesus. We'll talk about that tonight. Jesus Christ, our Lord. We'll talk about what all that means. It's not just saying, oh, I believe in Jesus. Now I'm going to, I've got my fire insurance. I'm going to go do whatever I want to do. No, when there is a coming of Christ into your life and when there is a being in Christ, you in him, there is a change in your life. There is a reformation. He used that word there until the coming of, until the time of reformation. There is a reforming. There is a reshaping. There is a rebirth in your life that comes with being in Christ and being in this new covenant. Oh, it's a glorious truth. If it makes you careless, you don't understand the gospel. If it makes you careless, you don't understand what it means to be changed by the power of the gospel, the power of Jesus Christ, the gospel, the power of God unto salvation to all who believe, the Jew first and then to the Gentile, Paul said in Romans chapter 1. That's the gospel. The gospel is powerful. The new covenant is powerful. And in this new covenant, we'll still sin. And for our walk with Christ, there still needs to be confession. For our own growth and strengthening, there needs to be confession. But there does not need to be confession for forgiveness. Or we're all in trouble. We're all doomed. And we're all lost. It's the glory of the new covenant. There's an unrestricted access to God. We know him. We are now in his family. We are his adopted children. There's a complete cleansing of sin, not a partial cleansing. And there is no longer a limited pardon of sin, a limited forgiveness. I will be merciful to their iniquities, that is sins, and I will remember their sins no more. Says who? Says God. Jesus. That's what I'll do in their lives. If they're in me. If they're in this new covenant. I quoted John Calvin a few moments ago in, in his statement of the gospel. To give equal time here. Let me quote Charles Wesley. In his great hymn... Arise, my soul, arise. He expresses this freedom to worship and to live in relationship as an adopted child of God. Listen to what he says in one of those verses. My God is reconciled. His pardoning voice I hear. He owns me for his child. I can no longer fear. With confidence, I now draw nigh. With confidence, I now draw nigh. And Father, Abba, Father, I cry. There's intimacy. There's relationship. There's changed life. There is complete forgiveness. There is cleansing that is total in the new covenant. Why did there need to be a new covenant? Because the old covenant could not do that. But Christ does it as the initiator and the sealer through his blood of that new covenant. Let's pray together.
Father, we are grateful that we are living in the time of the new covenant. That we can know you. That we can have a new motivation within the Holy Spirit writing your your word, writing your law upon our hearts and our mind. And that we can know complete forgiveness of our sins and sin. Father, I pray this day that you will teach us even more what it means to live in new covenant relationship. It's not careless living. Very careful living. But it's not legalistic living. It's living carefully in freedom. Because Christ has set us free. And it was for freedom that he set us free. Free from the bondage of sin. Freedom from the bondage of Satan. Freedom from the bondage of, of our old self. We might walk in obedience. We're made free to obey. We're made free to walk with you. Where we could not do it without that freedom. Father, I pray this day that your Holy Spirit will teach us that and bind us to it. As we come to this time of commitment, Lord, many will need to make commitments right where they sit, right where they stand in a moment with you. Perhaps you're leading others to come and be a part of this church family. Father, I pray that you'd make that clear, make that known. And Lord, let us move and do what we need to do before you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.